It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Good to have you with us. It's a very simple answer. They should investigate the Biden. Likewise, China should start an investigation into the Biden. Because what happened to China is just about as bad as what happened with Ukraine. If it were me, I would recommend that they start an investigation into the Biden. The week has been a week. Almost every minute, it seems, there's new information revealed about President Trump's interactions with the Ukrainian government. The president continues to defend himself and lash out at Democrats over Twitter while, as you just heard, also calling for China to open an investigation into former Vice President Biden and his son. And late Thursday, we learned of texts from high-level administration officials that suggest a quid pro quo with the Ukrainian government. Quid pro quo. I tell you things, you tell me things. And for Democratic leaders on Capitol Hill, it's been full steam ahead on the impeachment inquiry. We still need to flesh out um, what was the State Department's role, what was the Secretary's role, what was the role of the Attorney General. There's a great more that we need to know to understand the full depth of the president's misconduct. But most members of Congress are home in their districts on recess, and that means talking to and hearing from constituents. Doing nothing to me means his behavior gets Worse. On Tuesday, in Union City, California, Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell actually hosted a town hall on impeachment. You don't impeach this president. Like, what would be considered <laughs> And here's Republican Congressman Tim Burchett speaking after a town hall in East Tennessee. You know, you don't want to say the deep state, but is that, what, is that what's going on here? And I just think we've got, there's a lot of questions to be answered. I don't think the American public overall once an impeachment. Then on Wednesday night, on Staten Island in New York City, constituents of Congressman Max Rose gathered for a town hall that was supposed to be about transit. But that wasn't the only thing on people's minds. I'm interested to know if he's going to make up his mind about impeachment anytime soon, because I think it's about time he did. <laughs> As if anticipating the curiosity, Congressman Rose, the lone Democratic holdout in New York City, addressed impeachment in his opening remarks. I intend to fully support this impeachment inquiry and follow the facts. And on Thursday, in Virginia Beach... I didn't spend 20 years in uniform defending our country to watch something like this happen. That's Congresswoman Elaine Luria, who's currently in her home district, Virginia's second. I caught up with her this week. She's one of the seven freshman Democrats with a background in national security who came out in support of the impeachment inquiry via an op-ed in the Washington Post. The congresswoman represents a purple district that is home to many people who voted for the president. I sat down with her to discuss how she's thinking about impeachment and the road ahead. I would have to say that throughout um, my campaign, I was not someone who focused on you know being against things. I was not out there beating the drum um, against President Trump or, you know, very aggressive in that kind of way. I really wanted to be the kind of person who was for something, something positive. Um, and we wanted to get across the, the messages about things that, you know, we thought people cared about from what we heard across the district, which were health care, Social Security, Medicare, the environment, um, and the military. We have a huge military concentration here, so really making sure that we do the right thing for our troops, for our veterans, and I wanted to talk about all those things, and those messages resonated. And, you know, something was very, very different uh, about these new 
um, revelations that we have about the situation and the president's interaction with the president of Ukraine. I saw this as you know, president of the United States is enlisting the help of a foreign leader uh, to conduct an investigation, a smear campaign, dig up dirt on his future political opponent in order to alter the outcome of our next election. And at the same time, leveraging foreign military aid um, to a country that, that relies on it heavily as, as a bargaining chip in order to make this investigation happen. And it was just very clear to me these events were were separate and distinct from, from the other things that had been going on. I had been following those investigations closely, understood that all of the applicable committees had been working very hard to get to the bottom of evidence about different things that happened before this. But this was clear, this was distinct, and I thought this was truly a threat to our national security. And, you know, I spent 20 years in uniform myself, and you know, I, I didn't spend two decades in the military to watch something like this happen, to watch our Constitution be trampled on, to watch our national security be threatened. The Republican National Committee is already running ads in your district saying that you, by calling for an impeachment inquiry, are letting your constituents down. Instead of focusing on bread and butter issues, you're simply focused on a partisan political agenda. I did not make this decision with a political calculus, thinking about how uh, it would potentially harm me uh, for getting reelected in 2020. I made the decision because I thought it was right. I knew that looking in the mirror um, 10 years from now that I would know I had made the right decision at this critical point in time. Um, and that I would have been on the right side of history. And, you know, honestly, every day what I hope is that the president of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, that he would look in the mirror too and say, I'm doing what's right. I'm doing the most good for the most people and not what's just politically expedient or helpful to him. How often did this issue of impeachment come up in the town hall? It was predetermined um, that, you know, one out of the three um, topics we would cover at the town hall was impeachment, because I know that that's on people's minds. But if I look at, you know, the, the calls, the, the letters, the emails that we get into the office, um, as of yesterday, we had gotten roughly 427 calls um, since last week uh, regarding the topic of impeachment. And 63% of those were positive and in support of the decision I had made. How does it get to the point for you where you feel comfortable saying, I will vote to impeach the president? What do you need to see in order to make that decision? Well, I think that the information that we had um, at the start, I mean, the president and his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, admitted, yes, I made this phone call. I asked the president of Ukraine to conduct this investigation into my future political opponent. That was pretty cut and dry. And to me, that is clearly the use of the president's office for his own political gain, and that is inappropriate. And very quickly after that, we received transcript of the call, well, the Cliff Notes version, and then we received the whistleblower complaint. And every day, there's more and more information that's more and more troubling. So I feel that you know we have to let this play out and understand some more of, of the details surrounding it. But there's clear and compelling evidence. And every day it reinforces my decision to move forward with the inquiry and um, watching very closely, um, want to, to learn more details than just the um, summary of the text messages that the committee chairs released last night uh, with regards to the testimony that happened yesterday. But I want to understand um, the full extent of it because I think there's there's more than we see on the surface here, but the information that we that we had from the onset were, were truly compelling to me to start. There's been talk that Democratic leadership would like to move forward 
if there is a vote on impeachment before the end of the year, there's talk about maybe Thanksgiving. Is there a timeline in your mind about about this? Well, I think that we need to do this methodically, but also expeditiously. So that is the time frame that I have heard. Um, and I think that that is the projected time frame based off of the witnesses, the type of evidence that the, the committees uh, plan to request or subpoena um, from different sources. And, you know, I support that timeline. And I think that that will give clear and concise resolution uh, to the American public about this issue. So I do not think this is something that needs to drag on for years. So I would like to see um, the next step taken before the end of the year. You haven't been in Washington all that long, but I'm sure you've been there long enough to know that um, this is likely to be a pretty heated experience. Have you seen any indication that there could be any bipartisan agreement on going forward on this issue? Or is this going to really turn into a Democrat versus Republican? I work a lot with my colleagues across the aisle. Um, you know, in the Virginia delegation, it's a, it's a well-known fact. We, we meet as a full delegation, all mm-hmm. 11 of us plus both senators every month. And that's not something that happens from every state. I'm part of two different bipartisan caucuses. And so I have a lot of interaction and a lot of colleagues, um, you know, across the aisle. But I would have to say that that this is an issue where, at least until the time um, we left Washington a few days ago, um, my Republican colleagues were pretty silent. I didn't get up in their face and say, what are you thinking? Why are you not coming along? Because it's it's all unfolding. And I know that people need to see the facts and and understand and be able to make a decision themselves. But I'd have to say that I have not had an in-depth conversation or a conversation that I would say is rather optimistic um, that any of those people who I, I work with regularly on a lot of other issues are, are are going to come along. But, you know, as more information comes out, I, I think that everyone will have to evaluate that individually. And I, I truly hope that we can get to a point where this is a bipartisan issue where we see support um, from both sides because we can see the path forward about what's best for our country um, rather than just keeping it a political partisan divided issue. And is it that they've been quiet about it, you think, because they are angry with what Democrats are doing and defensive of the president? Or they're not talking about this because they don't really know what to say? I'd say it's some of both. I mean, everyone has different constituents, different districts, different mm-hmm. backgrounds. And, you know, I think all those things you described are probably in the mix to, to different portions and, and different people's minds. So I'd say all of the above. If indeed this is a partisan vote in the House, it's all Democrats, really no Republicans supporting it. It goes to the Senate where, again, no Republicans support it. What will your takeaway be then? You know, looking into that direction in the future. You know, we don't have a, a crystal ball per se right. to see what's what's going to happen or, or what further information is going to come out or what public opinion or, um, you know, House members, Senate members are going to change moving forward. But, you know, I, I can truly speak from my own perspective. And what I would say for that is that I made this decision without any political calculus. I made it because I looked at the fact that I saw our president enlisting the help of a foreign leader to meddle in our future election. And I thought that is wrong. That puts our elections process, our national security at risk. And I'm going to do the right thing because it's right uh, without concern for political ramifications to myself down the road. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we get to the situation that y- you described, um, I think that it is a clear opportunity at the ballot box in 2020. I mean, they can voters can go and they can uh, express their opinion on, on how this played out, um, e- 
in my race and as well uh, for the future presidential candidates. You work very closely with some of your freshman colleagues who either served in the military or have security backgrounds. You wrote this op-ed together. Um, was that a week ago? It feels like it was about two months ago that that happened. About a week and a half now. <laughs> yeah. Are you all, do you stay in touch then throughout this? I mean, are you calling and texting and keeping in touch with each other, with each of these developments and working through this together? I'd say that we're pretty much constantly in touch. Um, there's roughly 10 of us. And, um, you know, we stay in touch about each other's town halls, about the events of the day. We share thoughts on, you know, how did you respond to this? Or did you get asked this uh, particular question? Really, and we don't always come back to the same place. And we don't always respond the same way. But I think, you know, having that close bond of our shared experience, the fact that we all served, we were all former members of the military, the intelligence community, CIA, really gives us a common ground that has allowed us to create a friendship um, and also a great working relationship to, to use each other's uh, as a sounding board. Congresswoman Luria, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and talking with me today. Well, thank you, Amy. Thanks for having me. Back in Washington, D.C., the impeachment inquiry is barreling forward. It was probably the most significant finding we've seen so far in the House Democrats' impeachment inquiry, let alone uh, investigation. That's Rachel Bade. She covers Congress for The Washington Post, and I spoke to her on Friday after a very late night of reporting. I will tell you, we were up there for something like 15 to 16 hours. Uh, Kurt Volker, who's obviously the former U.S. Special Envoy to Ukraine was up giving a deposition behind closed doors to um, a number of Democratic committees. Obviously, the Republicans were there, too. Um, And we came out and learned at about 10 o'clock at night uh, that he had provided them with evidence that there was coordination between the State Department and Ukrainian officials, along with Trump's lawyer Rudy Giuliani, to basically leverage a potential face-to-face meeting between Trump and Ukraine's president to try to get them to investigate both Biden um, and the origins of the 2016 uh, Russia interference investigation, which obviously Trump has been saying a lot lately that he thinks Ukraine, not Russia, was sort of out to get him. And this obviously has been debunked over and over again. Uh, But the president, as we have seen from the reporting over the past few weeks, has been leaning on Ukraine to, you know, have this investigation. But the significance of the findings we had Thursday night late into the evening was that we actually saw text messages where we saw State Department officials laying out uh, in front of our eyes how they were trying to hold off a meeting with Ukraine and Trump until they had promised publicly to have this investigation, which is huge. It is huge. So how are Republicans then responding to this? Because many walked out of that hearing earlier on Thursday saying there was nothing to see there. This is just Adam Schiff posturing and at this moment, what is what is their response been? It's been the same. And, you know, we sort of hmm. saw it earlier in the day on Thursday where they were coming out um, and saying nothing to see here. This 
doesn't in any way help the Democrats, but they wouldn't say why. They weren't say what they were learning behind closed doors. And then, of course, even after everything was over and, you know, assumingly they had seen the text messages because the committee asked about the text messages, questioned Volcker about them and the sequence of events, uh, Mark Meadows came out. He's one of the president's top allies on Capitol Hill, a Republican from North Carolina, former head of the conservative freedom caucus and he was like look i want the transcript to be released i don't think there's anything in here that's damaging to the president and in fact he said it would be quote chilling for the impeachment investigation but you know you look at this and you see quite the opposite so um you have not heard from members of congress then in response to these text messages the investigative committees put out a statement around 10, 1030 when they first released these text mm. messages. And their statement basically laid out the argument I think Democrats are going to make, which is that this is seems to be, uh, in their view, clear evidence that Trump is sort of laying out foreign policy or conditioning normal bilateral relations with an ally of ours on a promise that they were going to investigate a political opponent. So I would expect a lot of Democrats in the coming days to use the phrase quid pro quo. Trump has been saying no quid pro quo. You read some of these text messages and they refer to it as, quote, the deliverable. And there's been no coordinated response yet from Republicans. Have you heard from the minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, and others about what they are saying to their members, to their conference? Minority whip Steve Scalise, I know he had a whip caucus call. So he had dozens of Republicans on a call. They're all back in their districts. Mm. Um, I should say this was Thursday afternoon. And basically, it was a messaging discussion. And they had Liz Cheney talk about how they would discuss impeachment going forward. And they had Steve Shabbat, who is a Republican from Ohio, and actually was um, one of the managers for the Clinton impeachment, they had him talk about process and what Republicans can expect from a process standpoint. So I know they're talking about it behind closed doors, but this obviously came out late Thursday, and it is probably going to reset a lot of those talking points. I wouldn't be surprised um, if we heard of more Republican conference calls coming up in the coming days to sort of mm. figure out how to respond to this. I can tell you I've heard from privately uh, from some more moderate types, uh, more centrist Republicans who are concerned that the messaging that they're getting from the leadership isn't giving them cover and they don't know how to respond to this. Um, so we are also going to see when it comes to Republicans, Democrats, Democratic leadership right now is talking about going on the offense uh, against Republicans in terms of impeachment. They had always been concerned that impeachment was a political loser for them. And even after they decided we have no choice, we have to back this, they were not happy about it um, when the Ukraine controversy broke. But I'm hearing from political types in the House House aides who handle po the politics side of all this. And they're now talking about going on the offense against some of these moderate Republicans because of their silence and because they think the polls are shifting so quickly that this might be an issue that really can help them, actually. Rachel, what happens next? I know there are a number of other testimonies expected on Capitol Hill next week. What should we be looking out for? Well, the committees are going to try to get documents about all the talks that Trump has had with the Ukrainian president and uh, from the White House, they have subpoenaed this information and they're going to try to get it. Now, I think Democrats going into this knew that there was going to be a point 
where they couldn't get anymore. And I think that they were surprised even that they were able to get Volker to come in and work with them and testify behind closed doors for 10 hours. This is the first time they've actually had a Trump administration official who's been willing to really cooperate with their investigations. So they think they're going to have potentially a couple of other former state officials who are familiar uh, with what was going on come in and testify about their own stories in all of this. But at some point, they're expecting the White House is going to shut everything down and not let them have any documents, not let them have any more witnesses. And instead of going to the courts like they have in all their other investigations, when the White House has stonewalled things, they're going to sort of collect charges where he has ignored congressional subpoenas. And they're going to put him in an article of impeachment that says he obstructed Congress. And so this is why we think in the coming weeks, this is going to move very fast and they're going to likely vote on articles of impeachment, potentially even before the end of the year, because at some point in the next couple of weeks, they think they're going to hit a brick wall with the White House, but they have enough already in their view to impeach him. So they're just going to bundle it up and have the vote. Rachel Bade, thank you so much for coming in, speaking with me. I know you have been burning all kinds of midnight oil. So thanks. <laughs> just keep the coffee coming. <laughs> <laughs> we, we will. No surprise here, but the president has not been lying low. He's been lashing out at Democrats and the media, and he's defending his decision to ask the Ukrainian government to open an investigation into a political rival. But with each passing day and each bit of new information revealed, President Trump's predicament is looking more and more precarious. So what's the White House strategy going forward, and how are they preparing for the possibility of an impeachment vote? Here to tell us more about that is Yamiche Alcindor, White House correspondent for the PBS NewsHour and a political contributor for MSNBC. Yamiche, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. So given all the news this week, Yamiche, are folks in the White House looking at impeachment differently today than they were, say, a week ago when Speaker Pelosi announced the official impeachment inquiry? I think at the beginning uh, of this, of Nancy Pelosi announcing this impeachment inquiry, the White House was really trying to wrap their minds around what that meant, as was really all of Washington. And I think now that we're more than a week into this, um, I think the White House understands that the, the Democrats are seriously taking this into consideration, that, they're, that they've moved full steam ahead, that they've scheduled depositions, that they scheduled hearings. And as a result, we see a White House um, and really a president who I think is more agitated, more concerned than he was at the beginning of this. However, I haven't really, based on my reporting, seen exactly an impeachment strategy from the White House yet. I think it's more the president himself um, heading up messaging. And, and that messaging, of course, is that he did nothing wrong and the Democrats are really out to get him because they're mad that he was elected in 2016. And how closely are folks in the White House keeping tabs on Republicans in Congress? Are they really working hard to keep everyone on the same page? Or is it, as you said, the president's kind of making his own strategy and Republicans around the country are just have to sort of keep up on their own? The White House is definitely thinking about how Republicans are messaging, and they're sending talking points to Republicans, some of which were accidentally sent to Democrats. Um, but they're, they want Republicans to be on the same page when it comes to messaging. So, for example, 
for people who don't remember, before the transcript or the memo detailing the call between the president and President Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, was released, the White House had a meeting with GOP lawmakers to say, look, this is what's going to be in this in this document. And by the way, here's some of the things you should be saying. You should be saying there wasn't a quid pro quo. You should be saying that now that this has been released, there shouldn't really be any back and forth about kind of what the president said. Everything's kind of now been aired out. Um, so the White House is definitely keep, keeping tabs on that. But the problem that the president's running into is that there are some Republicans, very few of them, that do have concerning um do have concerns when it comes to the way that he's been speaking about this, including demanding to know who the whistleblower is, saying that there's going to be a civil war um, because the Democrats are looking at this impeachment inquiry and things like that. Okay, we've got to take a quick break. When we return, we'll be back with you, Michelle Sindor. This is Politics with Amy Walter. We're back with you, Michelle Sindor, White House correspondent for the PBS NewsHour and a political contributor for MSNBC. Yamish, there seems to be a difference of opinion when you look at the reelect apparatus for the president. They sort of see this as being good for them. It's energizing the base. It's raising a lot of money. And we're now seeing that the president's campaign is actually running ads attacking Democrats, saying that they're undercutting the president with these partisan inquiries. Is this what you're hearing, too, that the that the reelect campaign is just leaning into impeachment? For a while, the Trump campaign has been saying if the Democrats impeach the president or move forward with any sort of impeachment proceeding, that it would help him to get reelected. And as a result, they're continuing to, to have that messaging. However, I'm not sure if in private conversations, they aren't also concerned, as I think I get um, co- concerned from White House aides and the president himself, about how this could damage him. Um, they are spending millions of dollars on ads, both on social media and in TV, to make the case that, one, Joe Biden is corrupt and shouldn't be elected president, and two, that President Trump is actually a victim of a long witch hunt that's been going on with the Democrats. So they're saying that publicly that they don't care um, and that this will help the president get reelected. But I think privately, there's still some really nervousness and anxiety about what this will mean for the president. And what about the um, other high profile members of the administration, Secretary of State Pompeo, the vice president? Is your expectation that they are going to be rolled out um, to do more during impeachment or are they going to take a backseat? It seems as though Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Vice President Mike Pence are going to be called upon to defend the president. Just yesterday, when the president shocked a lot of people by saying that China should investigate Joe Biden, we saw Mike Pence in a at an event in Arizona say actually that is exactly what should be happening and and really provided a full-throated defense of President Trump. And so I think what we're going to see and what my reporting shows is that people in this administration are really trying to circle the wagons around President Trump. And as a result, you're ha- you're hearing more from Secretary Pompeo and others saying, yes, what the president's doing is completely right. I don't know if that's going to continue, but it seems mm-hmm. as though whatever the president says, they're going to back up. But Yamish, do they have any idea what's coming down the pike? Do, you, do they have a sense of what's going to happen? Or are they just literally playing the ball where it lies and, and hoping to make the best of it? 
So they have to have at least some sense of what's coming because mm. we have had at least three impeachments of presidents or pre-impeachment proceedings of presidents. Um, but this White House is not at all preparing like other administrations. I've, 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 I've talked to lawyers who worked with Bill Clinton during the impeachment proceedings against him, and they had a whole legal apparatus. They had all sorts of spokesmen and surrogates and a really concerted effort and plan. This White House is not doing that. Instead, they're really doing a messaging war being held by the Trump campaign. Um, so this White House, I don't think it's preparing in the way that others have. Is there anything that you are seeing, again, from what broke most recently that may change this strategy? It's really hard to say because the president is someone who has not had to face consequences, um, both politically, legally, and otherwise, um, in a way that other people have. So people around him have gone to jail. Um, his former lawyer is in prison for the Stormy Daniels hush money payment. Um there are political consequences from other Republicans who haven't been reelected. Al Franken is no longer in the Senate. But this president has really been able to say and do whatever he wanted to do and not really face consequences. So I think it's going to be interesting to see if he ever bumps up into having to face consequences. But it doesn't look like that right now. This story hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention today. But what should we make of the announcement by Rick Perry that he is going to be resigning in a month? It's really interesting because the reports are that this has nothing to do with the issues with Ukraine, but there were Democrats starting to ask questions of Rick Perry and trying to look at documents for what role he might have played in this. So I think what we see is just a revolving door of people from the White House who have obviously seen a White House that has really seen a lot of turnover. But I'm not quite sure what to make of it because I think there needs to be more that we need to learn about Rick Perry and whatever ties he has to Ukraine. Michelle Sindor, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Amy. We heard from Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria at the top of the show. We also wanted to get the perspective of a Republican. We asked a number of GOP members to come on the show. They declined to participate. So I called up Tim Alberta, the chief political correspondent for Politico magazine. His recent book, American Carnage, is an exhaustive look at the current state of the Republican Party. I asked him whether he saw any possibility for impeachment to become a bipartisan affair. Absolutely not, barring something unimaginable. What we have with this whistleblower report and with this quasi-transcript is is clearly something that any Republican on Capitol Hill, if they're being honest with you, which most of them, when the microphone is rolling, they will not be honest with you, but most of them in a private setting, especially if you get a Bud Light or two into them, they will tell you exactly how uncomfortable they are with what they read and what they heard. Um, They understand that this is not normal, that it's not appropriate. However, I think the circling of the wagons that we've already seen on Capitol Hill tells you all you need to know about the likelihood of even one or two Republicans uh, crossing over and voting to convict, much less a dozen or more that you would need. But there is also a sense, just anecdotally, that I'm picking up that for a lot of Republicans, uh, both in Washington and and around the country, uh, because certainly folks in Washington, uh, they are a reflection of their constituents. When I've been talking to them for the last couple of weeks, There is a sense of fatigue there that, geez, this guy just can't keep his hand out of the cookie jar, that, geez, there's just never a dull moment, that, geez, we we can't catch a break here. Like, and that's the fatigue that I wonder what what effect that has on mobilizing voters. Your title suggests that there's an actual fight going on, but it sure seems to me like Trump has actually won that war. I don't know that his opposition is very strong anymore. 
this book, Amy, you know, is meant to trace the the roots of Trumpism and, and the rise of President Trump. But what I try to do in the book is examine more narrowly what happened to the Republican Party sort of from the twilight of the Bush presidency through present day. And obviously, really zeroing in on the year 2008, uh, where we saw this breach beginning to manifest itself in the Republican Party, you know, both ideologically and really much more so culturally, I think, with, you know, the emergence of Sarah Palin and all that she spoke to in that disconnect between the elites of the party and the grassroots, John McCain winning the nomination and and his unpopularity with the conservative base, uh, the financial crisis and the subsequent bailout of the banks. All of those events happening uh, in in close proximity to one another as George W. Bush was leaving office, so unpopular, I think those were the seeds of the Civil War that were planted. And obviously what we saw over the, you know, ensuing five, six, seven years with the rise of the Tea Party and these incredible collisions between the party's establishment and this insurgent wing, that in many ways was the story of the Civil War and also the story of Trump's rise because what it did, among other things, I think, Amy, was really weakened the establishment in in a way that sort of weakened the antibodies of the party itself and and allowed for someone like Trump to come along and take advantage of a party that had been systemically weakened. If you think about the Republican Party circa 2016, you're saying it was already... If we're going to continue this um, analogy, it was already sick, right? And so for this pathogen to come in, it was open to it. And then the pathogen took over, or is it that he was not the only pathogen in that body? In other words, it was sick already with a lot of this, and he was just the final one to come in. The entire political body was was getting sick. And this could be seen on the Democratic side to a lesser extent, obviously, but the fact that Bernie Sanders w- was was resonating in a way with the Democratic base and specifically with the progressive wing of the Democratic base in a way that was so surprising to many of mm-hmm. us. And what Donald Trump was speaking to, I think, was this real disillusionment, this real discontent among the conservative base with the Republican Party's establishment and a sense that the party in Washington no longer represented what they uh, were all about. When Americans start to feel left out, when they start to feel excluded, when they start to feel ignored, when they start to feel marginalized, big political shakeups can occur. And that's certainly where the Republican base was. And so I don't want to give Donald Trump too much credit. There, there, I think, are these two oversimplifications of Trump. One is that he is a wizard and that he's playing 10-dimensional chess and he's always 50 moves ahead of the opposition. And the other is that he's a dunce and that he has just sort of lucked into all of this. And I think neither of them are true. Trump certainly was very unique in his ability to expose that schism in the same way that Sarah Palin had had begun to all those years earlier and speak to the disillusionment, speak to the, the, the resentment that so many regular Americans felt with Washington and felt with the Republican governing class. But ultimately, you know, Trump did not plant that seed. He, he just harvested it. I think it had been planted long, long before. And really, if the Republican Party wants to blame anybody for this, it should blame itself. Well, let's think about, too, and I'm sure you've thought about this a lot, what the Republican Party looks like post-Trump. You know, I think two things can be true at the same time here. I think on the one hand, the post-Trump Republican Party is going to feature an awful lot of Republicans, not necessarily trying to do their best Trump impersonation, but trying to harness Trump's 
populist appeal in a way that will allow them to hang on to this this big new chunk of the Republican coalition, uh, which is the the uh, lower income, lower education level, blue collar, working class Americans who had long felt estranged from the Republican Party and really from the political establishment writ large, but certainly from a Republican Party that was defined by its kind of country club chamber of commerce wing. This is something I've talked a lot with Marco Rubio about over the last couple of years. And I think it's going to be a real question for him, for Nikki Haley, for Ted Cruz, for any of these other Republicans who are going to seek to lead the post-Trump GOP. It's how to thread that needle. How do you avoid falling back into that George W. Bush era complacent Republicanism, where you believe that if the Wall Street Journal editorial board was for it, then it was a good idea, right? You, you were so convinced of, of the infallibility of free markets and of, you know, kind of Reagan era orthodoxy that you didn't need to concern yourself with the discontent that was simmering in the Republican base. How do you avoid uh, falling into that trap and really uh, proactively try to keep those Trump voters engaged on the issues that they care about without crossing over into that darker side of populism that that this president has so frequently and so enthusiastically uh, immersed himself in? Tim Alberta, thank you for coming in and talking with me. It's my pleasure, Amy. It's always fun to see you. Tim Alberta is chief political correspondent for Politico magazine and the author of American Carnage. President Nixon did not hear the dramatic vote, the eyes and nose of those sitting in judgment on him in Washington. At the moment of the historic House Judiciary Committee decision, he was strolling on the sand under a warm California sunshine, listening to the pounding of heavy surf at Red Beach at the Camp Pendleton Marine Base. ABC News' Tom Gerald speaking there on July 27, 1974. In moments like these, I'd like to look back at history to see what, if any, guidance it can provide. Of course, it's not predictive, but understanding the context can still help us get some perspective. News Secretary Ronald Ziegler reached him by telephone to relay details of the vote. Mr. Nixon, presumably still dressed in swim trunks, was with his daughter Tricia and son-in-law Edward Cox. About an hour after the vote, there was a brief statement issued by News Secretary Ziegler. It says, and I quote, The president remains confident the full house will recognize that there simply is not the evidence to support this or any other article of impeachment. Timothy Neftali is a professor at NYU, a historian and the co-author of Impeachment and American History. I asked him if he sees any parallels between the current impeachment inquiry and what happened in the 1970s with Nixon or the 90s with Clinton. When I think about the Nixon and and Clinton experiences, I put them in different uh, categories. The Clinton uh, impeachment was a very partisan impeachment. There wasn't an attempt by the impeachers to build a bipartisan consensus. Nixon's is a different kind of impeachment. And that's I'm saying this not because of the people involved or the outcome, but it was a model impeachment because the impeachers ultimately came to include not simply members of both parties. Because in that era, your parties both had liberals and conservatives. So Mm -hmm. you could say, well, liberals in the Democratic Party and liberals in the Republican Party got rid of conservative Richard Nixon. Now, what's really interesting is that you had conservatives as well as liberals decide this guy had to go, that his continuing in office was a threat to the Constitution. So in terms of categories, you've got a partisan impeachment and as a more and a, and a bipartisan national impeachment, 
So the first question I'm, I ask myself when I look at the current events is, how are the potential impeachers, we're not at the impeachment pro, uh, stage yet, what are the, how are they acting? How are the leaders of the majority parties, because they're going to be influencing impeachment, how are they acting? Does it seem to be more of a partisan or bipartisan moment? So that's the kind of thing that I, I ask myself more than, you know, are we at, you know, March of 1973 yet or <laughs> May of 73, that sort of thing. My recollection of this was that most Republicans were very supportive of Nixon and had a lot of the same language that you're hearing now from Republicans about this being a biased process and this is all sort of trumped up and sticking with Nixon. Is that fair? Or how, how did that how does that look similar and different from how the president's party is addressing these uh, charges now? If you're just talking about Republican leaders, generally speaking, you're right. Republican leaders uh, were very supportive of Richard Nixon. One difference, though, was that they did not think the impeachment process was illegitimate. That's a very big difference between now and then. In 73-74, there was a bipartisan understanding that there should be an inquiry. It didn't mean that Republicans and Democrats agreed on the outcome of the inquiry. But after the Saturday night massacre... The president has fired the special Watergate prosecutor, Archibald Cox, because of the president's action, the attorney general has resigned. Richard Nixon also shut down the independent Watergate special prosecution force. He didn't just replace the head of the force. He shut down the whole operation or, to, or attempted to, which meant he was saying, I'm above the law. That's what got Republicans nervous. Now, getting you into the weeds, what's so striking about what happens to Republican sentiment in 74 is that Rank-and-file Republicans, the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, split. And they don't split along ideological lines. It's not that liberals go one way and conservatives another. They split on constitutional lines. Some of them, as they absorb the data that's coming out, some of them begin to say, oh, my goodness, this president has to go. And they ally with conservatives in the South who are Democrats, but they're in that era, the Democratic Party was really two parties. It was a northern, urban, liberal party, and it was a southern, conservative, and to a large extent, white nationalist party. The white nationalists were very pro-Nixon. Nixon had developed a strategy to actually pull those Democrats into the Republican Party. It was called the Southern Strategy. But a number of them decided, not because the Democratic Party put pressure on them, they decided on their own that Nixon had become, if you will, a tyrant that he, he was violating some of the concepts that, that backed up their ideas of states' rights. So they wanted him out for different reasons, but they coalesced with a group of Republicans to form the swing group that made the, the impeachment process in the House a bipartisan process. That's why, in the end, the articles of impeachment that are passed by the Judiciary Committee, it never goes to the full House because Nixon resigns, those articles were written by Republicans and conservative Democrats. This was truly a joint national effort, which makes it so different from the Clinton effort and so different from the Johnson impeachment process. We live in a time where, thanks in large part to cable news and to social media, anything involving this concept of impeachment equals impeachment. Do you think that members of Congress have the political flexibility to just say, look, I'm not calling for impeachment. 
I'm just saying we need to look at the facts? Or is it that as soon as you utter that term, as soon as there's a possibility of that in this political environment that we're in, you now are advocating for impeachment? I, I was asking myself that same question, and, I, and my answer was, was really worrying to me a few weeks ago. But I've noticed a change in rhetoric. I'm noticing members of Congress are parsing their words a little bit more carefully. They're talking about supporting an inquiry into impeachment as opposed to supporting impeachment. Now, some of them have already gone on record. Uh, Chairman Nadler of the Judiciary Committee, uh, unfortunately, went on record saying he personally was for impeachment. It was a mistake. You shouldn't have members of Congress who are ultimately going to be voting on the president telling us in advance how they'd vote. We should be expecting from our members of Congress that they act the way they would act if they were members of a jury. Unanimity is impossible in any great republic. That's not the, the goal. The goal is that most Americans leave thinking that the process has been fair. And that, by the way, puts a lot of onus, puts a lot of responsibility on the Democrats. They should be trying harder than they are at the moment to involve um, members of the other party in the process. Now, members of the other party may not, many are going to say, we don't want to be involved, but try hard, keep trying, because in the end, the country benefits if uh, Americans see that the majority party tried. In the 1970s, the Democrats not only tried, but succeeded to involve Republicans in the process. And as I said, Republicans and conservatives wrote the final version of the Articles of Impeachment that got bipartisan support. I'm not suggesting that's going to happen again, but I don't think Americans have changed fundamentally since the 70s. I think the Washington community has changed, and, and that's important to keep in mind. But I'm not saying that we are so partisan today that um, people who are concerned about the health of our Constitution can't react to information that makes them raise questions about the person they voted for. Tim Natale, thank you so much for coming and explaining all of this to us. Thank you for asking me, Amy. This week, we also got our first polls taken since House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced the House was starting a formal impeachment inquiry. And here's what they show. Even as support for impeachment has grown, opinions about how the president is doing his job are virtually unchanged. In other words, as we've seen over the last two-plus years, voters are pretty locked in to how they feel about this president. And there's nothing that's been able to alter that. Now, that's different from what we saw back during the Nixon impeachment. Back then, as support for impeachment rose, Nixon's approval ratings dropped. So today, while support for impeaching Trump is basically at the same point it was with Nixon in 1974, Trump's job approval rating is 41 percent. Nixon's was just 25 percent. It's a testament to just how much more polarized the electorate is today than it was 45 years ago. And a reminder that even as more and more information about Trump's interactions with Ukraine are revealed, much of it is getting to Americans through partisan, biased filters like social media and cable news. This makes it harder and harder for any sort of consensus to be found either among members of Congress or the electorate. And ultimately, we end up where we've been all along a divided country more deeply and firmly entrenched than ever, and those who aren't as politically engaged or aligned struggling to make sense of it all. Quit pro quo. I tell you things, you tell me things. That's all for us this week. The team that puts this show together, cheer for them. Jay Cowett, Vince Fairchild, Amber Hall, Polly Rungu, and Patricia Jacob. And our executive producer is Deirdre Depke. Our intern is Lita Hollowell. 
We had help this week from WNYC reporter Shamita Basu and Dave Ress, a reporter for The Virginian Pilot. Call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thank you so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway 